I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey everyone, back with Mind Rolling. And uh, today, uh, this is uh, Anthony Bosis, Tony, who is a, a, a mutual friend of, people, of someone you know, Ramesh Wardas, you guys out there. You know how he co-writes Ram Das's books and is in all these retreats we do, etc. So, uh, and I guess a, a shout out to Clara, right? Another mutual yeah. Clara Hendon, and uh, thank you for hooking us up. So Tony uh, is uh, someone who is on the front lines of the experiments that are going on today with ethnogens, psychedelics to help people with PTSD, cancer, addiction, etc. So you know what, Tony? First thing is to say thank you so much for the thank work you. that you're doing. Yeah, and very, very uh, lucky. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's real grace uh, that uh, you become an in, an instrument for this. And uh, Tony is at what NYU, right? Yeah, yeah. NYU School of Medicine. Okay, great. Uh, but I want to go uh, just to get to know you. This is the first time we're meeting. I kind of want to just go back to you're a teenager. This is how mind rolling started. Actually, I started with a partner of mine named David Silver. And the first things we did was we got to the core of what it was that helped transform us out of the horrid pain and suffering and depression. You know, for me, it was starting with like Bob Dylan, right? Back then, oh, somebody knows that there's pain and, and depression and a horrible scene going on. I'm not the only one. Uh, so, yeah, how did you uh, come through this knowing there was a, a path possible 
for you to be beyond mind, ego, and emotions and all that. Yeah, well, Dylan was part of that path as well. Yeah, yeah, um, good. Oh, yeah. oh, you know what? I have to say this. It's crazy, but I don't know if you saw yeah. Rolling Thunder Review, which is a film yeah. by Martin Scorsese that is on uh, when Dylan went out in 75 and he I, went out with, in the uh, white face. It, it is a staggering. The film is great because it's Scorsese, but Dylan, sing, he redeemed every bullshit thing that he did after that. Right, uh, like Elvis, uh, you know, belts at Madison Square Gardens, changing the melodies and the structure of the song to kill you. He killed me. So, so I got here, it wrong. we're on the same page. Here we go. So I, not only have I seen it, a good friend of mine is Amir Barlev, who had produced the recent Graceful Dead movie, mm. and we had he uh, provided me with a ticket to the VIP showing with Scorsese at Lincoln Center about a month ago. Oh, and we saw the the world premiere with the Scorsese and much of the crew who was still alive uh and it it is incredible and i went home and for about a week watched it every morning on my netflix especially the music pieces to the point my wife said why every morning are you watching those clips of Dylan? <laughs> <laughs> because that that's the goal and you're right that was a dividing point and that was an incredible slice of incredibility so um <laughs> that, that is something that uh, he was that was that was beautiful yeah, it was so the commitment and the the uh, authenticity, the charisma, the oh, and the, of course the every the words, the stories, they all came together. Can't more highly recommend that everybody out there listening. Okay. I agree, and uh, if you can catch it on the big screen, if it's gone, then watch it ten times in a row on Netflix. <laughs> a sweet part of that we could spend a whole hour just seeing Dylan and, and yeah. You, um, the sweet part of that movie was the ending when Gins- Allen Ginsberg does that prayer. Mm. So the movie's about this incredible road tour they're all on with Joan Baez and, and Joni Mitchell was there. I mean, Sam Shepard. And at the end of the film and the end of the tour, Allen Ginsberg comes on and does a beautiful prayer um, to uh, create your own, your own redemption, find your beauty, and send it out into the universe. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, great Ginsburg, and uh, the movie ends uh, with uh, another rendition with Bob and uh, uh, singing a song. So, great, I'm glad you mentioned that. We can stop right there, we're done. (laughs) Actually, now that you mentioned Allen Ginsburg, that was another, those two were in parallel for me to help uh, set off my uh, chance a little bit of freedom from where I was at. So, yeah, yeah, tell me about you. Tell okay, us. Yeah, great. And that's a great segue because I think for many of us of a certain age, um, and above 60, uh, and for many of us younger, that stuff is important, right? The, those, those, that music, those words, and the books we found uh, liberated us, be, began that liberation. You know, I, I was joking recently with some, when I was going to talk that those were the days we stared at album covers for hours on end. <laughs> we stared at the album, right? Not only played it, you looked at the cover. You know, Sgt. Pepper or Four Hours, and books. We'd stare at book covers for hours. So that, that seems to have slipped from There was the, some other reasoning around that. but Right, <laughs> right. Um, so my, my teen years, that, that's a great way to start. Um, but like many of us, I, I, well, even to go back a little earlier, that might dovetail to the work I do with end-of-life patients. Uh, this may may not be related, but it would be hard to uh, deny that it is. As a kid, like many of us, I had this death terror. I would lie in bed 
and try to imagine what eternity was like after I died. It's not only common thing for kids to have. And I would just kind of do this thing in my head forever and ever and ever. It went on for a number of minutes where it just became existential terror, right? And then I learned the technique somehow where I would say to myself as a seven-year-old, however old I was, eight, nine, where was I before I was born? And that kind of cut the terror. Mm. That's a um, mantra. Yeah, but that led kind of a path. And I, I grew up uh, in a Greek-American Orthodox family. That was a really mystical tradition, the Eastern Orthodox mm. Christian uh, Church. Um, and I'm still very close to the leadership and people within the church. It's quite a, a mystical lineage of Christianity that still persists. Um, and like many of us in my teens and really in, into college, uh, came across the books, of course, of Ram Das and um, other mainly Zen Buddhist texts and lineage from my own path, uh, path and a lot of Vedanta. Um, and then, you know, linking to this work, came across in my early 20s the, work, the research on psychedelics that was done back in the 50s uh, and 60s and began to read Huxley and Watts and the whole uh, group of incredible writings. Um, and that had really uh, jolted me. Uh, I had been already fascinated by mystical experience. What is that experience at the core of all religions? And continue to study or try to comparative religion or comparative mysticism. And then comes across this way that we could have that potentially with the right set and setting through these medicines. And they've been doing that for thousands of years. Uh, now this is by this time, the late 70s, early 80s, and I made a horrible career move thinking I want to do psychedelic research. Well, there wasn't anything happening, um, but eventually it turned out. So sometimes in life, if you put your intention in the right direction, maybe you get lucky and, and 30, 40 years later, it came, it came around. Um, a little patience helps too there. Uh, man. Uh, so that's part of it. I began as many of us do with TM back in those days. Um, <laughs> uh, probably because I thought it was important, probably because George Harrison did it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and um, that kicked open a path of, of course, meditation. And, uh, and ever since, that's been, that was a big opening period. And, and those three paths of Vandanta and Zen and, and Christian mysticism remain um, important. And um, I'm very grateful, uh, very lucky to be doing this work that does generate those experiences. And we'll and I will speak about it today, how these medicines can generate those mystical experiences that we see at the mystic core of the world religions. And that additionally, we'll get into this in detail, we see have therapeutic value along a number of clinical applications. What I'm most interested in is people uh, is dying. How do we die well with that anxiety? So I kind of can loop back to my being in bed at age, whatever it was, thinking, how do I even absorb or understand that? And um, these medicines have certainly shown a way out. So um, that's kind of a brief beginning. Mm. Um, so one of these things I took a look at, which of course re really interested me. Oh, I should say right from the get-go, you said in a TED talk, uh, we have to, something like this, we have to separate out the cultural frenzy of the 60s with this rigorous scientific approach, right? Does yeah. that ring? Yeah. yeah. I felt, 
deprecated there. Okay, yeah, we that that cultural frenzy we had. First of all, it was a an incredible amount of fun. Okay, and oh. we can't forget about fun. Right, and and as Ramdas himself says, like so many of us, right, went through that whole thing, and then many of us, meaning people who uh, are now more firmly in, ensconced in meditative practices. Uh, much more than uh, using psychedelics you know, as a result of of going to India and in our case meeting this particular being Neem Karoli Baba, the man in the blanket that we talk about all the time. And Ramdas says, had it not been for the ethnogens, had it not been for the psychedelics, I don't think I would have been quite as prepared to meet somebody that was a nobody. Right. Right. Yeah. So the that uh there's a there's I guess there's two things going on and you do address this a lot you know and and that is around that personal mystical experience that happens and then around the actual effects it can have on people even who have no penchant in that direction and maybe atheist or agnostic right including atheists and I'll I will give you a good story later about that yeah, well, I actually uh, let's let's okay. talk about that. Okay, but I want, I want to answer your question. So yeah. no, no harm meant to uh, the uh, the tens of hundreds of thousands of us who were um, <laughs> helped by that decade. The point of that, and and I, and I still think it's important to to say that as we go forward, unfortunately, the public at large—not you, because <laughs> you, you're not the public at large. You're, you're a special person who knew that, but they um, collapse whatever they think of the 60s, which is usually mythic, you know, and, and, and um, the superficial way, but not the, the meaningful experiences you're talking about. Um, and that's one slice, an important slice, but of thousands of years of entheogens being used, going back to ancient Greece and India and Mexico. That's um, an incredible time. Um, but there's also a lot of, stuff that went on social politically and culturally that people who are not familiar with entheogens or psychedelics do confuse and so i tried to separate some of the headlines of the era that aren't so meaningful uh with the reasons why it was important and i, I hope that comes through when, when i do those comments um because the, that era also gave us incredible people like houston smith like alan watts like ron Das. Um, on and on, and uh, Huxley, we can go on and on, and incredible art and music. Uh, so, and, and as you know, uh, there are many, many people, including many people from contemporary spiritual life and Buddhist and Christian and different lineages, will say that be, that was the opening, uh, and then became, began the spiritual practice. So, without that, they may not have been able to, as Ram Dass says, meet somebody who's a nobody. Um, and as Alan Watts famously said, and Mom Das repeats it often as well, when you get the message, hang up the phone. So I think these experiences were uh, almost birthrights for us, really, you know, um, for humans. Uh, I think they really are birthrights. I have that naturally, you know, they happen naturally throughout history as well, which we'll talk about. But so that's the point of that comment for people to separate who are less familiar with it what they think of the 60s um, and the frenzy and the political stuff and uh, versus the meaning 
meaning making part of that, which was quite important, especially in this spiritual artistic realm. Yeah. Um, well, I think it'd be uh, good to just describe a little bit about what the program that you have been working yeah. on, particularly, of course, with end of life and cancer and, and patients who are re- facing what uh, most people are quite afraid of, which is going through that process. Yeah, uh, let me backtrack a minute to just briefly shine a light on the earlier research. So uh, again, many people aren't aware, and it's, a quite a, it's quite a rich history, that going back to the early 40s, uh, medicines like LSD uh, were being you know, discovered, and psilocybin a little later on came to the States through a gentleman by the name of Gordon Wasson. But that in the early 60s, throughout the decade, into the mid-70s, there was a large body of psychedelic research, primarily with LSD um, and DPT, and then somewhat psilocybin. And um, after these medicines were uh, discovered, the experience, which we call a mystical experience, and I want to define that in a moment, um, was found to have this incredible clinical benefit on two main populations that grew out of that era. One was addiction, primarily alcoholism. Uh, and as many people may know, Bill Wilson, the founder of AA, had had many LSD experiences and mystical experiences, thus kind of generating his understanding and teaching that the antidote to addiction was the spiritual experience. Um, and hence the 12 steps kind of came out of that. Mm. The other arm that influenced me in a very big way was with people who were dying of cancer. Uh, and it was quickly seen through the research at Spring Grove and uh, Stan Groff and, and Bill Richards and others from the era, um, and, and Bill is still around doing great work, that this experience, one session, may generate this mystical experience that seemed to recalibrate fear of death. And so sadly, the research ended uh, in the early 70s, after the 1970s, Nixon signed a congressional you know, act that made this, these drugs out of the reach of the culture. They were legal, actually, and out of the reach of research, mm. um, which never in the history of medicine has happened. That a medicine has removed from clinical trials or research such promise because of a cultural phenomenon. It would be like making opiates now unavailable for medicine because there's an opiate problem in the streets. And um, for 30 years, nothing happened. Um, let me quickly define mystical experience. I'll do it to, yeah. to, the, to the conversation today. Um, there are a variety of experiences people can have when they take a psychedelic, such as psilocybin, mescaline, LSD. And those are considered what's called a classic hallucinogens. There could be an autobiographical experience, revisiting stages of one's life. There could be aesthetic visionary, so things look good and sound better, but we found the therapeutic predictor of outcome, of good outcome, and a profound insight, the thing that is this mystical or peak experience. It's defined as only a few criteria. One is unity, the person experiences everything as connected. Transcendence, the sense of transcending this body, even transcending time and place, time and space. And some people pull the lens back so far, so to speak, they can peek beyond birth and death. 
to what we've seen people talk about. If you're dying of cancer or of anything, and you're aware that the body is beginning to fail, it will soon stop working. We're so attached to the body that the insight many people get that I think is the recalibrating insight is that I'm not this body. I might be something more. There might be something more either within me or even outside me and outside biology. And that is a whole host of uh, thought that maybe consciousness, which we don't know what it is, might be outside biology, what we call non-local. And these brains are kind of media, you know, tuners that bring it in, which challenges all the assumptions <laughs> that we've had. Um, the other, that's the main feature. And uh, then the other features are uh, sacredness, profound senses of holiness and wonder, positive emotions, love and gratitude, ineffability, impossible to speak about, but they do a good job. Um, and one is called paradoxicality. People experience these, that in the awareness we're both in now, that I think we're both in, I'm not sure where you're at, but I think we're both in now, right? Um, doesn't make sense, but in that state, it makes perfect sense. Something like, I was dead, but I never felt so much alive. Or I experienced the emptiness of everything that was filled with the everythingness of the universe. And so those are the main kind of features. So that's the mystical experience. So now fast forward 35 years or so, and we're in this incredible reemergence that a lot of your viewers, viewers I know know about. Uh, it's been quite the talk of the town, psychedelics back in the culture. And gratefully, we resumed a number, a number of sites around the world research. Um, and the ones that I'm going to speak about today involves picking up where they left off decades ago. Can we give this medicine, psilocybin, the active ingredient from a mushroom, street language, the magic mushroom, to a person with cancer, with very intense anxiety, or someone who's dying, and measure their effects? And we're happy to report that in 2016, Johns Hopkins, along with our team at NYU, following a, a prior study at UCLA with Charlie Grobe, um, showed that had findings never seen before in the history of medicine, which always sounds strange coming out of my mouth, but it's true, mm. that this one dose, this one session, dramatically reduced anxiety and depression for weeks. 80% reported a, a tremendous drop going down up to six months, and we're still following the ones who are still alive. It also reduced something called demoralization, which is an awful experience uh, associated with end-of-life distress where you feel demoralized and hopeless. Um, it, en it enhanced spiritual well-being, uh, and on and on. And so, um, and many people reported that one experience as the single most or top five most important spiritual and meaningful experience of their lifetime. Um, and that's found throughout the research, not only in these trials, but with smoking, trials with smoking cessation, with addiction. So that's really fascinating. And I, you know, I know we'll stay on that part a little bit today. We'll come back and forth to it. That aside from it being powerfully therapeutic in a lot, a lot of ways, what appears to be the most robust feature is this mystical experience. And I'm left with this incredible question mm -hmm. what is that like, you know we're, we're wired for meaning you know these aren't drug studies only per se because these happen naturally throughout time 
uh, and on the foundations of religion. I, I mean, as Ram Das famously says, he gave it to his guru, to Maharaji, and he said, well, we, I, I know this place, I've been here before. So we're wired for transcendent experiences, and why is that? Yeah, I just, let me correct you on that one. I know this place, I've been here before. Well, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, the reality was there was no experiencer. When I say we were prepared to meet a nobody only by virtue of these ethnogens and psychedelics, and that's because we had never met someone that there's no uh, back and forth going on. There's just a one pool thing. And so what he said about it was, this is good for beginners. Uh it takes you into Christ for a couple hours, but then you got to go back. It's best to just love like that. That's what he said, you know, from the non-dual place. That's where it was all coming from. So, yeah, there wasn't anybody experienced. I mean, he jived Ramdas because Ramdas, when he went back to America, thought that he had tossed it over his shoulder. And he, well, maybe he didn't really. So when he came back, he brought some more acid back. And when he came back, when we went back with him the second time, and then Maharaji, he brought it up and said, do you have any more of that? And then he took each tab, carefully put it on his uh, tongue, you know, <laughs> closed his mouth and swallowed it. Yeah. So, and, and again, it was the same non-result because there's non-person <laughs> experiencing. And, and that's... Uh, that is the essence of mystical experience. That is the uh, the actual nth degree of of what you see when you do take an ethnogen and experience is that direct, complete interconnection with everything. And you know, it's funny. Uh, I, I think you know Rick Doblin. Yeah, very well. Yeah, very well. So I did a podcast with him. He said, you people who originally took psychedelics that drove you to the East, and now you have been engaging in Eastern practices, either Hinduism, Buddhism, or whatever, you know, Sufism, uh, and you have not taken any, uh, any ethnogens in all of this time. Many of you have not. He said, as you get to that end stage of life, uh, you might consider, actually, and he was particularly talking about MDMA because MDMA, talk about the connector, MDMA, the interconnection of everything is so uh, readily experienced on that particular psychedelic. He said that would be something that would be perhaps a great reminder at this stage of the game. I thought that was very uh, insightful, actually. Yeah, he's done incredible work. Oh, yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Is that comment and the comment with visiting Christ for a few hours is uh, yeah, and then you got to leave. So, which is why Ramdas went to India, looking for a roadmap of consciousness because he kept coming down. He said, "Can't be, you know, this this up and down is not with it is not the core of truth." And that's why he went there and, and went through this whole thing using you know, with psychedelics, with uh, Ninka Olibaba. And that's a good, yeah, that's a great point for the, for the audience as well, which that um, it's about the follow up work. You know, Eustace Smith says famously, a spiritual experience does not make a spiritual life. Paraphrasing him. Uh, 
So we both know that many people have had psychedelics. They're all not leading the most spiritually <laughs> life. So it's about what you do with it. Um, and um, and in this research, you know, we do embed the experience within a, a brief period of um, meetings, and then. Um, uh, so far, the experiences have sustained until people either pass away and the ones who are still living are still having it. So, um, and what we're hoping to have more of these trials in the future. The, the hope is that within five, seven, ten years or so, this medicine is approved by the FDA for this, at least to start with this clinical application of people with end of life distress. And while it wouldn't be available in your CVS, It'll be kind of following Albert Hoffman, who discovered LSD, his vision of centers. Yeah. People can go, spend a few weeks, have some sessions with trained guides, and then return to their home, um, which we see in history as well. In terms of the Lucidian mysteries in ancient Greece, there were these centers people went to to experience the entheogen uh, and then return to their life, hopefully, uh, somewhat changed. Mm. I think undoubtedly. I mean, obviously, that everybody has a different path and a different circumstantial thing, basically karmic predilection. Uh, and you're right, you know, many people who took psychedelics didn't exactly do it with set and setting, never mind in, a, in the atmosphere that uh, uh, you're operating in. And, uh, and many people did not come out of it in a way that was positive in their life because of the intention that they had. Actually, Ramdas and I did a podcast not too long ago, maybe last summer, uh, just about reinvigorating set and setting and really uh, getting your intention way more in front of your actions. Uh, and, uh, you know, because many, many, I mean, we are seeing as many, many next-gen people that are coming to Ramdas and coming to the retreats and coming to the website and through the podcast and everything that we do that, again, woken up by psychedelics. I mean, there was an extraordinary, I mean, it feels so much like late 60s, early 70s now uh, in, in, in that way. And, and, you know, they're finding be here now in college too, you know, just like we all did back then. So uh, I, I, I think it's really important, and I think we should probably do a little bit more around Ramdas's, uh, you know, wonderful uh, relating of how you can have the proper intention and use the setting and uh, the set and setting in a way that is uh, is going to enhance the the experience beyond the moment so that it really takes action in your day-to-day life. So can you just talk about a little bit of, of the set and setting that you, you are working with? That, that I really want to underscore that. Um, and by the way, set and setting, and so set refers to the mindset of the person, where personality, the... Intention uh, is involved there, yeah. Intention is lined up in that. And then the setting is where and how it's done. Mm. So a teenager taking a hit of acid and a noisy, crowded, chaotic parking lot with a band playing who's not screened properly, may have, you know, been drinking and all bets are off what might happen, right? Yeah, right. Um, and by the way, set and setting, one of the original uh, citations for it came out of a book that uh, Ram Dass then 
uh, Richard Alpert, Ralph Metzger, who recently passed away, and, and, and Tim Leary, uh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, but they're the second book experience, their version of that, where they mentioned Set and Seti. It's one of the first times it's mentioned in that. Oh, time. really? Yeah. So it's still very important. Um, and it's important to say that with, with proper set and setting, we've had no serious adverse effects in many, many cases, of course, the sites. You can't say that about people doing it without that kind of set and setting and intention. So when we meet with people for about four weeks prior to their session. They're screened carefully for a variety of medical and psychiatric uh, exclusion and inclusion criteria. Um, and we spend around three or four sessions getting to know them. And of all the you know, modern features of, of science, the biggest uh, buffer against uh, an anxiety experience is the rapport, one of the major buffers. Rapport with the guides um, uh, and trust. Trust the room, trust themselves. I tell them as you lead to the session, trust us, trust the medicine, and of all, trust consciousness. Mm. Trust the unfolding changes as they occur. Mm. And uh, it is the single most important guideline for the session. Very often, early on in the session, people will encounter, as you know, some dark, can encounter dark imagery or dark experiences. And by avoiding those, it kind of only fuels that terror. Uh, but by going into it, as you would in the Vipassana or meditative experience, staying with the unfolding, it changes like this to something typically transformative. And my personal experience of guiding sessions, I've never seen someone move into the experience, even in the very face of death, and not have a teaching or an insight develop if they go right into it. Mm-hmm. Um, including people who, who will say they died, they come to ego death, um, and then you felt reborn in this incredible, uh, you know, born again, which probably is what they meant back in terms of scripture, be born again. Um, have the death rebirth process. Um, and I want to get back to in a moment about this aspect of love they experience in those, in those moments. But said said it was crucial. Um, and then there's a follow-up integration period after the session. So that is important. Um, it's important in life. And people often ask, what can we glean from these sessions for everyday waking consciousness? And I think that's one of them. That when shit's happening, as it happens all the time uh, in this material world, by staying with it and looking into it, it may change. By avoiding it, it seems to kind of grow. Mm. Uh, certainly in the psychedelic experience, that we see that constantly. Everyday experience. Absolutely everyday experience. And everybody knows that. Everyone knows that. And uh, the amount of awareness it takes and, and, a, and a bit of practice so you don't jump on that train, on that emotional or thought train. There's a great quote in, in Mount Athos. Are you familiar with Mount Athos? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great, uh, I was lucky enough to spend some time there a while back, and it's where these ancient, these Greek monasteries are. Um, but they're like, it's called the Greek Tibet. They're like, you know, that mystic core, there's no difference. Is that monastery a Christian monastery? A, yeah. Um, there's an inscription among one of the monasteries, the monastery of St. Paul, where it says, if you die before you die, then you won't die when you die. Yeah. And that's this. So people read that and probably think, what the hell are they talking about? But that's the experience we're seeing in this in the research. Some people have these ego death, rebirth experiences. 
um, which as Thich Nhat Hanh once says, actually quoting Christ, that we're, we're, we're born again into, into the light. We're born again into a new way of seeing. Um, and, you know, as, as a scientist or a psychologist or whatever, <laughs> um, to watch that in a, in a, you know, a clinical trial is incredible. Mm. It really reshapes how they die. It really does. Wow. That's so great, Tony. And um, I know that um, given the atmosphere within which you are doing this, which is a university, and um, what's the, the in-between from the spiritual side, the, these experiences that you're describing, and then the treatment side? where, you know, we are looking to help these people to get beyond fear and give them tools to move forward on a day-to-day basis. There seems to be a little, how, how is that being integrated? The effects of the experience once they leave the study? Yeah, I mean, once they, they have this experience and then, you know, they're obviously not, this is, I don't know how many times do these people do this. Is it- they, they have a placebo, which is you know, <laughs> placebo, and and then one slow vibing session. So that, that's right. the, yeah. So they have this experience, right? So yeah, how does it connect with the treatment side? Because right. obviously you're not leaving them hanging, right? So the, so um, following the the medicine sessions, there is an integration period, a follow up period of weeks where we're still with them. Uh, exploring, talking about the experience. Uh, they do eventually leave the study within nine months and or you know, leave the trial. People often ask what integration does. And so, you know, there, not, not one person is the same. Some people have this powerful, powerful experience where they report is being immersed in an aspect of consciousness or consciousness. And they, they're fully aware, they, they report that there's no death. This, this body is just a vehicle and all, all that. And so the integration might be a little easier with that one. We're just supporting what happened and being with them for a mm-hmm. period of weeks. But the important part of integration is to take what happened and, and apply it. It's, it's tempting at times for people to think this is a drug effect. It was just a drug effect. Um, now people don't tell us that the ones who have it say no that was there's actually been a recent study done um, at Hopkins where people who had naturally occurring and or entheogenic induced mystical experiences report that experience of reality more real than this reality mm-hmm. <laughs> so many people know that that was reality it's called a noetic quality William James coined that term that's one of the criteria um, encountering a sense of knowledge um, but a lot of other experiences during their experience are things like forgiveness for people in their lives, um, people who've hurt them, um, trying to change the way they're living before they pass away. And not to leave that on the couch in the session room, but to go out and make it happen. So, you know, in AA, they make amends, right? There's this, it's sort of going around and trying to apply what happened, uh, to, to apply it, to make it part of the practice. So, but then they leave the study. Now, we're fortunate we stay in touch with them. Uh, and about a third or a little more have since passed away already. So um, it's, it's a, you know, you get to know people very, very closely. Uh, and, um, you know, as in palliative care, and I, I worked in palliative care, people you're close to uh, that aren't there. 
So, uh, and I want to just touch a bit on this aspect that, while it's not scientific in terms of the data, it's what I think is driving the study in many ways, is people talking about this loving, this love they get. And I, I try to always recall that because that is what they're telling us. I mean, we can show you charts and slides of depression, anxiety, all dropping, and they are. The, the data looks wonderful. Um, qualitatively, what's happening? What's the phenomenology of the experience? And the thing that I'm most personally struck by, as we all are, um, is they experience the sense of love, one loving kindness towards self, one towards other people in their life. Plenty um, of people, maybe in early life, who haven't treated them so well. But then this sense of love is the ground of being, to kind of to quote Paul Tillich. And I, I like the Greek word agape, this kind of divine love, and that's incredible. And you mentioned an you know, atheist, and I, I often mention a woman named Dinah when I, when I talk about these experiences, who was a, an atheist. Um, as I often joke, a broken atheist, which is a serious, <laughs> but there's like a Hawaii atheist, that's serious. But she had an incredible experience of being bathed in God's love, her words. And she said to us, she wrote down this beautiful journal. I don't want to say that because I'm an atheist. I don't believe in that language. But there are no other words to describe my experience than to say I was bathed in God's love. And I love that, the, the, the poignancy of that contradiction. And, and she, she was doing wonderful. She's a lovely um, woman. So, um, and, you know, love is a human word. We make these words up. Yeah, but, right, right. Yeah, so the human concepts, God, love, whatever you, you call this. But what's, you know, the big $64,000 question, they're all talking about this essence or energies, as, you know, some of the religions call it. The Greeks call it the uncreated energies of everything going on. Um, what is that somethingness? Um, and when it's accessed, um, we're seeing fear of death reduced. We're seeing people become less depressed. Some Hopkins studies, people are stopping to smoke cigarettes. Um, and other studies, they're addressing PTSD. So not only is it a, a way to have insight into the nature of self or, or being or reality, we're finding if it's access, we're seeing clinical applications for healing. So there's like a self-healing mechanism within us. Mm. That really is just, it's yeah. incredible. Yeah. I mean, another, uh, yeah, love, that word is, is tough. Uh, it's tough. It becomes an all the hallmark card. It gets so, yeah, yeah, it's so much. So is guru. So yeah. is, you know, there's so many terms for, from the East that are impossible. Yeah. I love the, the, the path that say, don't even say the word God or love. Try find, you know, because it gets overused. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's the word they use because for lack of any yeah. other word. You know? Well, I think putting unconditional in front of it, I think, is a good thing because all the love that we are are used to and the relationships that we have and that we've had even from uh, from earliest uh, memories are conditional relationships which is you know ramdas in his talks goes when i met this being and he told me stuff that nobody could know about myself uh and then i re i'm sitting in front of him and i realize shit if he can if he can do that then he knows everything including all this really bad dark stuff that's in my head and as he thought of it you know he looked up at maharaji who was just beaming at him like it is all okay <laughs> you know and that and he realized for the first time in his entire life he had received unconditional love in that moment so 
that that's uh, it's kind of a it, the conditionality that we that we operate on a day to day basis, which is another beautiful thing of of ethnogens, you know, beyond, of course, the work that you're doing uh, for people to have that experience. And that completely shifts their life, their lives. When they have that, the, you know, the, condi- the conditionality, you know, goes away. But yeah. you know what? I, and I love uh, trust consciousness. I, I, you know, I want to call this podcast Trust Consciousness. I love that. Eh? Ah, really? Really? Perfect. Yeah, yeah, I love that you said it's all okay. Another uh, other language you hear a lot is that so, so people are often weeping during these experiences. For a variety of reasons. Dying or leaving people life. And when we ask them, very often the sentiment is that it was so gloriously beautiful, whatever this all is, but it's also so sad. It's also fleeting. We treat each other like shit. We hurt the planet. There's death, there's suffering everywhere. The um, word kamalipi, I'm mispronouncing it in, actually in Greek. This joyful morning of sweet sorrow, this combination of both ecstasy and melancholy or sadness in a sweet way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the end, they say, but it's all okay. Even with the wars and the death and destruction and the crap we do to each other, is it all okay? As you just said for it. Um, but that's very touching um, to hear that, that there, there's this transcendent sense of joy and, and uh, eternal wisdom and acceptance but they're keenly aware of um the suffering all around them throughout time i mean yeah. and it's wars and, and, and wars to come yeah. or yeah. we live in a crazy time now the zeitgeist yeah. we are now is just yeah oh it's really beyond the beyond and that's uh, you know our ability uh, to live on more than one plane of consciousness at the same time is uh absolutely a birthright yep right? So, yeah, and this, these experiences, I think, are birthrights. Mm. The question is, we don't have the answer. Why are they so infrequent? Right? It's an amazing question. You know, they, they, they seem to be pro-social, pro-ethical, pro-species, continuing, right? Yeah, wow. Uh, yet, you know, fear, here... Fear, 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 yeah. fear. Uh, and which is an incredible, you know... Loss um, of control, it, loss of power, all of it, you know. You know the book you just know, Richard Buck's Cosmic Consciousness, a great book. Mm-hmm. He talks about his take on it, and you know, it will increase with frequency as the species evolves. There will be more of these experiences, uh, and to the point that could save the species, you know. But we will see. It's an amazing time, by the way, to have these medicines come back, given the yeah. zeitgeist. Oh, around the world with Authoritarian regimes popping up and the planet at, at peril. Um, yeah, at these return is 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 quite interesting. Yeah. I like uh, somebody asked you one of these things that I saw online. Uh, do you think these drugs and experiences are tapping into something innately spiritual about humans? And you say, if, yeah, it's a great question. And uh, of course, oh. yes, <laughs> big time, yes. And it's stuff that Jung and Rudolf Otto uh, and uh, Abraham Maslow, uh, they call the peak experience. And many people, when they have these experiences, by the way, and not just through ethnogens, but also through meditation, uh, which happened to me one time where I realized I had had that experience, that peak experience as a child, an Mm -hmm. eight or nine-year-old sitting on my bed one day. 
and I know that many, many, many of us have that experience. And yes, it is, uh, as we were just talking, it is certainly a, a birthright. Right? It happens all the time. There's a recent Pew poll. 49% of Americans report having mystical or peak experiences. Mm. Right. Now, they may not be the three-hour versions you get with an enthusiast. But the glimpses as kids we had, as you know, walking through the woods, a variety of things, and you felt this temporary transcendent experience. Now, Alan Watts has a great line where he says, you know, these, these, occur, these occur all the time, but culture has pushed them out of context. Unlike in his book, Island, where there's a social context to speak about it, if you're a kid, you're in, the, you're in your bed that day, you had that experience, I doubt you went down to your mother and said, Hey, mom, I just had this incredible experience where I felt I left my body and I was yeah. one with everything. It's, it's, as, as Watts said, it's pushed out of the spiritual landscape, which is not too well in the country. Um, uh, so there needs to be kind of almost a spiritual you know, revival where these experiences are accepted as normal yeah. and yeah. as the birthright. And, and I do, you know, they, they seem to be the probably linked, taking a leap of faith here, to the foundation of consciousness. But what mm. is, that's the next, I think, the next step of science. What is consciousness? Mm. And is, are these right. experiences somehow linked to the grounding, grounding of it? Yeah. Uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama certainly is, you know, with Richie Davidson and these other neuroscientists, they are getting at that. Yeah, which is exciting. There's, there's one interesting thing that many, and, you know, no one knows. So we're a lot of the grabs here. But as you know, in the near-death experience, the experiences people have are very much like this. Uh, people who've died on the surgery table and, and return to consciousness, they report the same experiences. So again, whatever that is, is being evoked. Um, so some would say because of that, that's what happens. That's where we go. That's consciousness. Someone who could take the opposing view and say, no, it's just the, the dying brain generated this experience when it dies. My question to that would be, why would nature do that? Why would nature be so, you know, most things we're wired to do are for a reason to keep the species going, evolutionarily built in for a purpose. Why would nature wire us that after the species is dead, it gives us this incredible, loving, full of light experience? It wouldn't make sense. No. Versus the other viewpoint, that's what's, that might be what's outside of, of the physical death. So... The next hundred years will be interesting and fascinating with this research, um, uh, as long as we keep uh, keep ourselves going. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. The the socio political atmosphere probably has to evolve a little bit, but uh, we're hoping for that now, aren't we? That's wild. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, we're we're nearing the end, but I, I wanted to ask you. What happens when you give psychedelic drugs to spiritual leaders? Is this article you sent me uh, in life? Yeah. What does uh, happen? Yeah. So I, I can't speak about the study per, per se. We're, we're, we're not published yet. And uh, you're actually in a study or I can describe this in a, in a brief sentence and we're not publicly speaking about it. There's a, there's an FDA and there's not written on it. As, as you've seen, there are FDA clinical trials at John Hopkins and then NYU that are wrapping up now, um, but we're not published yet. Um, administering psilocybin to religious professionals you know, of different traditions. Uh, and it's not to heal anything. These are healthy people. But it's to have them help us understand the, the landscape of these experiences. Um, you know, how, how would they describe it? How do we all describe it? Uh, you know, qualitative research. 
know, one way of measuring things in science was observing the changes. There might be a limited scientific paradigm in one way. The emerging paradigm might be the subjectivity, the subjective experiences of things, the phenomenology, the, the qualitative nature. So by mapping together lots of people's experiences, we're getting a fuller landscape of what, what, what are these? And what does it mean for people who specialize, spend their life studying religion and mystical experience to hopefully have one of those? How do they describe it? So uh, stay tuned. I can't, I can't go into it now, but I, I could say that much. Um, but it's very exciting. And, um, you know, we're all trying to, you know, keep our, you know, the, the culture now is embracing this, this work, but we want to keep it also very mm. measured and, and not, yeah, you know, right. not have anybody. What happened last time? You know, 50 yeah, years yeah. ago, this was very popular. And unfortunately, things changed. So we want to keep it in the scientific, uh, rigorous realm for now and plowing mm. forward. Okay. Well, you, you'll give, you'll uh, send me a note when we can talk about this because I it would be fascinating. It would be part two here of of, uh, of this chat. I will uh, send you sure. note that the, the subject will say trust consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> part two. Part deux. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the end. The ending. The finish. <laughs> yeah. Really. There is no, there is no end. Yeah. Um. There's a. In that article, I just want to. Uh, there's one beautiful quote uh, of of a Dr. Craig Blinderman. I, I'm, ah, Craig's a very nice guy. Yep. Yeah, he says a return to ethnogens for the treatment of psycho existential suffering. Yeah. And believe me, and we all know that we've all got psycho existential suffering. This is not limited to ten people or whatever. May signal that medicine has come full circle to embrace the earliest known approach to healing our deepest of human agonies. Yeah, I mean, great. is great. that is so great about, okay, anybody want to know why right. we are doing this and, and uh, you are leading this charge? And, and quickly, on that note, that's a beautiful quote by Greg. This is a paradigm shift in how we use medicine. Every medicine we're all taking, your cardiac medicine, your blood pressure, your cholesterol, people's pain, they take it every day to get the desired effect. This is taken once or a few times. The drugs out of the system in hours. The experience transforms. Whatever that experience of all that is, the absolute, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's a shift in how we look at medicine. It's, yeah. it's activating the self, whatever that self-healing mechanism is when we access a, a larger chunk of consciousness. But, you know, um, uh, and... And it's known by a thousand names. The Tao, God, Christ, Consciousness, Buddha, Nature, Sanyata. I mean, a thousand names. It doesn't matter. A pure consciousness. But when it's accessed, it's, it's, to study it scientifically is stunning. And um, we're all very grateful. And I'm grateful for you for giving me this chance to talk. Oh, no. I mean, this is a, a thrill. This is something I've wanted to get a little bit more into and, and discuss. But hey, by the way, you know, some of the, just thinking of the, the work that you're doing with spiritual leaders, uh, with ethnogens. So do you, do you know who Mingjur Rinpoche is? I don't think so. Tell me. Okay. I'm turning you on. He's good, just, good. Uh, he is just the most wonderful Tibetan Lama. Uh, he's in a family. Uh, people are bored by the way, Tony, of me talking about him. I have been talking about him week after week after week. He wrote a book called in love with the world. He left his monastery. He's the son of Tulku Urgian Rinpoche, one of the great Tibetan masters of the last century and a half. 
and Tulku Urgin had uh, four sons, three of which, one is Mingyur, one is Chokni Rinpoche, and one is Choki Nima. And they are extraordinary lamas. Wow. And, and Mingyur, in particular, left his monastery and went on a four and a half year, uh, went uh, as a sadhu around India with a begging bowl because he wanted to completely eviscerate his identity, his masks, all of it. And he was an advanced being, an advanced meditator. You know, his father was just uh, like uh, taught meditation, I, I think even to the Dalai Lama, you know, stuff like that. So they, he was part of an experiment with Richie Davidson and other neuroscientists where they were testing uh, meditative, what happened in the brain of uh, a being like this that could go into called upon states uh, and eventually manifest the, and you could see it in, you know, in all of the readings and so on. So Mingjur, they would say, okay, uh, meditate now on compassion. Like that, bing, everything went, I mean, they could measure he was there instantaneously. Okay. They were blown away that, that a, any being could do such a thing, right? And to me, that leads us back to uh, you know, what we were talking about. This is our birthright. It is a birthright. This is obviously, uh, and he, this guy, this Lama just proved it, obviously that uh, became uh, surface with him, not buried, surface. And... Uh, this is our birthright. It is not the anxiety, depression, and and, uh, and so on that many of us relate to as me, me on a day-to-day basis. So that's another reason why these studies that you're doing are that's, extraordinarily I, important. You're going to send me that uh, link on that, but I'm going I'm to get that's a wonderful story. That's incredible. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is the birthright. And why we're so, why it's, there's such a separation is the age-old question, but um, that's yep. the type of the practice. And um, yeah. Yeah. Well, keep on keeping on, Tony. Because you, my friend. Yeah, this is so great. Thank you for being here and, uh, on Mind Rolling, part of the Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and uh, catch all of these fantastic uh, podcasters from Jack Cornfield to Ramdas to Krishna, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Gold. We have a pack of incredible people tony on this net murder is rough spirituality <laughs> so uh, again thank you for being here and everybody we'll see you next week on mind rolling 